at one point she looked at me and she said, I know you can do this. If at any point during this process, had I thought you can't handle this, I would have never agreed to let you be my client. So when she said that to me, I was like, hell yeah, I can do this. And you did? I did. I've never known anyone with a dragon. What does he look like? Just a plain ordinary dragon. Hey everybody. Welcome back to Plain Ordinary Dragon. I'm really excited for today's episode because today you get to meet my wife. That's right. Jana Lee Gibson Clifton is going to be joining us today and she's going to be telling you some of the stories of the adversity she's gone through in her life and how she's come out on the other side. I'm really excited to share this with you because you're going to get to see why I won the wife lottery. That's absolutely right. Uh, I'm very, very lucky uh, to have her in my life and to have her as a partner. And she is one of the most amazing dragons I've ever met in my entire life. And you're about to see why. Because the things that she does and things that she's done, the the way that she has moved through life and overcome all these different challenges to be the the very silver lining positive type of person that she is it's not something that I can accomplish uh, very easily at all it's something I have to work at I'm very cynical and I marvel at what she's able to do and the way she's able to look at the world and it's one of the reasons why I love her so much and it's going to be one of the reasons that you're going to love her so much as well because she just looks at the good of everything and she has gone through some dark times folks now I just want you all to know that we're going to be discussing some tough subjects and we're going to be talking about death we're going to be talking about getting past uh, emotionally past those things but I just want anybody to know anybody that's listening please be aware that a lot of this, even though this is a, is probably the most empowering episode we've had, please understand it's not an easy episode to get through because Jana's gone through a lot of things in her life and she's come out on the other side of it a strong, amazing person. I just want you to know that you know we're going to talk about some things that are pretty graphic. Uh, there's a lot of emotion involved and so forth. So please just be aware of that. It's something... I believe was very important to the story that we kind of go through and, and we, we don't get particularly graphic, but there is some graphic piece about it. Anyway, please be aware of that as you listen, you know, when she was a child, I think she was four and we'll discuss it in the, in the podcast, but when she was a child, she lost her brother. She and her brother were out playing in the, in a, in a, in the field in Texas um, and a four wheeler uh, flipped over on him and crushed him. And she was there for that. And she had to go through that uh, trauma. She actually ended up having to go get somebody to come get him uh, because he was pinned. And it, it, um, it was a harrowing situation for her. Uh, and then as life went on, she had other challenges. Uh, and, and just I mean, when you listen to the adversity she's faced and the amazing outlook that she has on what, what she can do, and what she's been able to do, what you're able to do, she leaves me in awe every single day. Let's just go ahead and listen. Hey, sweetie. Hey, honey. I'm really happy to have you on the podcast today. 
Well, thanks for having me here. Where are you from originally? Richland Springs, Texas. A metropolis, is it? Uh, yeah, we had 11 people in my graduating class. I was one of three girls. How was that? Interesting. I had to walk the homecoming court my freshman and my senior year because there were only three girls in the class. So there were some perks. <laughs> I guess. I never won. <laughs> <laughs> oh, or were there perks to winning? <laughs> I, I guess you got to say you won. Oh, I see. Uh, so what's what's Richland known for? Football. Really? Yeah. Six-man football. Well, before I met you, I had never heard of such a thing. Well, it's uh, it's definitely different. I didn't realize it was different until I got out of my bubble, and no one else had heard of it either. Oh, well, that makes sense. Well, I you know, I spent time there in Richland with you, and I grew to really enjoy the six-man football stuff. That was pretty cool. And they're pretty well known for their six-man football, aren't they? Yeah, they've won state championship a number of times. I think... This year they're hoping for nine, so they've they've won eight times before in the last since I graduated, which was almost twenty years ago. And they had, I think ESPN even did a special on them at one point, didn't they? Yeah, I think so. Well, as we all know, in almost all sports, there's politics, and usually that's never discussed. Uh, I don't know that this is the platform to do that necessarily, but maybe at some point in the future we can. We'll see how it all goes. <laughs> Yeah, now for all the nervous people listening. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, okay, so you were the youngest in your family. Yes, I guess that's true. You had an older brother? I had an older brother. He passed away, I believe I was four uh, when he passed away, so he was nine. When you lost a sibling at that age, mm-hmm. um, how did that affect you at that age? And growing up. I know it affected me greatly, but to what extent, I'm not sure. I think I'm still trying to figure that out. I'm still trying to figure out how it affects me. Uh, I'm just now on the cusp of that, I think. Um, I spent a lot of years trying to replace that friendship uh, and that relationship, and it just can't be replaced. And I didn't realize that that was what I was doing until a year or two ago. I always wondered why my friendships were never never quite added up to what I was expecting. How much older than you was he? Five years. Oh, so there was there was a good stretch there. Yes. So he was he was the big older brother and that's, you know, something that's impossible to replace, obviously. Sure. And so you didn't didn't feel like at the time that there was a lot of fallout from that, like in your high school years and so forth? I don't know. I have this wonderful coping mechanism that my brain does that uh, traumatic times in my life I can't remember. I've just completely blocked a lot of it out. So for a lot of years, I thought that it didn't affect me that much because I was so young when it happened. I was only four, and so you're just really starting to be able to form good memories at that point um, that you can retain. I thought, well, it, ha- it hasn't affected me that much because I was so young, but I've found that to not be true. In my high school years, I was pretty wild in high school. I don't know if that was a direct result of that or other things going on in my home life, but I was a pretty wild child in high school. 
Now, you did grow up in what we would consider today a broken home. Yes. And how old were you when your parents split up? I think I was, like I said, I don't remember things very specifically, but I think I was 13 or 14 whenever my parents got divorced. But it had been rocky for a lot of years, uh, ever since my brother died before that happened. So... So that seems, I mean, that seems like a lot of, really, a lot of adversity to deal with at such a young age. Sure, but you don't, when you grow up that way, you don't realize that it's a lot to deal with um, because it's just normal to you. It's just life. It's just what's happening. So it's not until you get older and you learn more and you experience more and you're around other people and other families that you realize, wow, that's, yeah, maybe that was a lot to deal with. And so... Uh, well, you said you were wild in high school. How was high school for you? Um, it was good. It was, I had a pretty good high school. I mean, elementary school was terrible, but high school was not bad. High school, uh, oh, about 14 years old, I blossomed pretty well. And so I had, you know, curves and all my acne had gone away and I had gotten my braces off and I'd you know figured out how to fix my hair finally and things like that and and so I wasn't popular or anything but you know I was I had a group of friends that I appreciated and that sort of thing anyway so high school was good I uh, played basketball um, when I was in sixth grade that was the first year that you could really participate kind of in basketball and I was terrible I was awful just awful it it was really bad like I went out and I was like a bull in a china closet I was just throwing girls across the floor like knocking people over couldn't dribble you know none of that stuff I was still young enough that I believed there were in anything I wanted to do I could do so it was at that point that I decided, you know what, I'm just going to be good at basketball. That's what I'm going to do. That summer, I worked and worked and worked, and my mom and dad built me a um, basketball court in the backyard just out of a concrete slab and a goal that we had stuck up. And I worked constantly trying to improve and get better, and I did. And the next year, I came back, and I was really good. And by the time I was in high school... I was really good for that area, you know, as small of a town as we were, that sort of thing. Um, You know, I'm not under any illusions that I could have been a role player or anything, but I was, especially compared to where I came from, I was really good. So I won MVP three out of the four years I was in high school, and so... That was what my high school was about, was basketball. Like, that's all I really cared about. That's why I ran track in the off season, you know. So as soon as basketball season was over my senior year, I didn't run track anymore. <laughs> now, you had, um, but you, you got recognized for basketball. Almost, uh, since I graduated. But I was recognized. I was put, I was made an alternate Yeah, I think it was that summer I got to my first husband, and so I didn't go. Uh, I planned my wedding instead. And it's tough to make those decisions as kids, too. Sure, yeah, I was still seven. What happened from there? uh, I graduated in May, and I got married in August. And then I moved to Austin, Texas with 
uh, my ex-husband, and we both worked at a car dealership there, and I worked full-time, and I went to school at Austin Community College part-time for five years. (laughs) (laughs) And so how was the experience going from college and just, or uh, from high school, really, into the workforce, uh, and then trying to do college on the Uh, It was definitely a challenge. When they gave me the job at the dealership, they were just doing it as a favor to my then husband. Uh, He already worked there. He had talked to somebody, and they agreed to give me a job. You know, I was fresh out of high school. I didn't have any experience. The most I had done was, like, wait tables for two weeks in high school, and I hated it so bad that I quit and never went back. So I didn't have any experience or anything, and they just hired me. Uh, as the file clerk, and unbeknownst to me, that was a unair conditioned room above the shop in the middle of Texas in the summer, filing paperwork eight hours a day. So a fun job. <laughs> yeah. So I was about two weeks into that job, and I thought, but it just so happened that one day they were short in the cashier's office on a Saturday when I was working, and they called me in to answer the phones. And I never went back. I was a cashier manager within six months. A couple years later, I moved up to the accounting office, and I was the head of accounts payable. And so you were doing that while going to college part-time? Yes. That went on for a little while. And then uh, I guess you and your husband at the time had some challenges. Uh, Yeah, you could say that. We had some (laughs) challenges. We just got married when we were young. You know, I was 18, he was 23, and we just changed, and I don't know how much I should say here. Um, (laughs) Well, you don't have to say He made a connection with someone from his past, and it wasn't a connection that I was okay with, and so that relationship ended. And that was about the time that I met you. Yes. That is it safe to say that that was a pretty devastating breakup for you? Yeah, it's safe to say that. It was, I don't know how to really explain it. It's when you start building a life with someone, when that ends, you're basically saying goodbye to your identity and you have to create an entire new one. Because the friends that you had, the family that you had, those are no longer there. So it's almost like a rebirth. And those are always tough. I think we all have had situations in our life where you know, we've lost relationships that meant a lot to us and went through challenging moments. And I know I certainly did. Um, and a lot of times that wrecks you initially and you have to work through all of what happened and the the feelings and the emotions and and you know i see relationships lots of times as bubbles and in the relationship bubble a lot of time you don't see uh, anything but what's in there and it's hard to realize that what's outside of it can be as good or better than what you have in that particular moment and so when life throws you challenges or curves along those lines uh, it, it's it takes a bit of time to be able to transition into something new 
Okay, so then that relationship fell apart, and uh, or y'all went separate ways, and you uh, had to decide what you were going to do next. Yes, I had to make a choice between um, going to school full-time. My mother said that she would let me move back in with her and support me while I went to school full-time. My mother has always been very supportive like that uh, when I needed her the most. Or I could continue to live in Austin and work full-time and try to go to school part-time. And But I didn't make enough money to really make that a realistic possibility. So I decided to move back in with my mother and finish my college degree. So you did that for a little while. And then um, actually, I think after, I think that summer, the following summer after um, uh, we had gotten together, then you went ahead and came up to Arkansas for a visit over the summer and decided to stay. And so you actually uh, went to school at the University of Arkansas for a little while. I did. I went to school. um, Actually, first I went to school at Missouri State University in Springfield, Missouri for a semester. And then we moved to Fayetteville. And so I went to school at the University of Arkansas, I think for an entire year. And then... I met with a counselor, a guidance counselor at the school, and it made more sense to go back to Texas to finish my degree because a lot, some of the stuff from Texas that I had already taken didn't translate over to other states and that sort of thing. And so we talked about it, and I decided to go back to Texas and finish my degree there. Right. And then your dad allowed you, he had uh, the house that you, he had bought a new house and moved into a new house and he had his old house available for you to stay in while you were down there. Right. Uh, I moved in with my mom first for a while, um, but it was just for a couple months. It wasn't for very long at all. And then he had moved out of his house in Richland Springs. And so he allowed me to move in there. So you were going to school, uh, you were living in his place and then I guess tragedy kind of struck. Yes. Um, grief and I are old friends. We've known each other well since I was very young, and he decided to come for a visit, and my dad passed away in a motorcycle accident. Yeah, and he'd never really ridden motorcycles before. No, he just kind of bought one on a whim, garage sailing one weekend, and he saw one, and he decided to buy it, and he wanted to get better gas mileage. Now, you you and your father had become close, or closer, at that point. Yeah, we were closer at that point than we had been at any other point in in our relationship or in my life. He didn't come from a very loving home. Uh, his dad, from what I understand, was not, he passed away before I was born, but from what I understand, he was not a very loving father. Um, and so my dad wasn't sure how to relate to me for a lot of years. We didn't really start getting along until I was a teenager and in my early adult years. You know, like we always loved each other and we knew we loved each other, but it wasn't something we said to one another. Mm-hmm. So he bought the motorcycle. You went and saw him the day he had the accident, didn't you? Yes. Um, I went to see him. Oh, we visited each other a lot at that time. Uh, we were getting along pretty well, so I went to see him three or four days a week sometimes you know anytime I was bored I would go over there and go hang out with him and he 
had decided that he was going to sell the motorcycle and he was going to go on one last ride before he sold it. And so I was there when he left and I get to, I got to hug him and tell him bye and tell him that I loved him, which I guess, you know, had I known that was going to be the last time I ever saw him, maybe I would have hugged him a little longer. You know, I, I feel like that's a pretty good way to see somebody for the last time. Yeah. Yeah, because you never really know. To tell a little bit from my perspective, at the time I was working in Arkansas, I also happened to be on call at the time. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure why so many things happen while I'm on call, but it seems to go that way. But I remember uh, the night you called me. I was actually at work when you called me and said that your dad had been in a motorcycle accident. Right. And uh, I went ahead and... Uh, at that time, we didn't know that he had passed. Like, it was still... Right. At that time, all we knew was that uh, he was being care-flighted out. Um, and we were told he was being care-flighted to Scott and White Hospital in Temple. My cousin Paul, who is one of my favorite people on the planet, showed up and said, I'll drive you. I'll take you. Don't worry about it. Just get in the truck. I'll take care of everything. And so I called you and said, hey, this is where we're going. And you said, okay, I'll meet you there as soon as I can. But we both knew it was a 12 to 14 hour drive for you. So Yeah, no, I hung up the phone, called my boss and said, you've got to find somebody else to take on call. I've got to go to Texas. And uh, luckily for me, uh, my boss was very understanding and, and so forth and said, go do what you need to do. And we did. Um, and I did. I grabbed dad and, and drove, <laughs> I don't know, 12 or 14 hours or whatever it was to get down there and so forth. By the time I got there, we knew that your dad had passed. Yeah, Paul and I didn't even make it to Scott and Wyatt. We were on our way there. You know, in small towns, uh, word travels fast. And so we had gotten a call from, I believe it was his dad, my uncle Doug. Uh, and they already knew that he had passed away. They had to make a... I don't know what it's called, diversion, maybe. Um, they had to make an emergency stop at in Fort Hood at the military hospital there because he was losing his vitals, I guess, were oh, right, crashing, were tanking. Um, and so they decided, you know, to make an emergency stop in Fort Hood. And he was still alive when they got there, but not for long. I, the emergency doctor, I guess, on call, um, I can't remember a whole lot, you know, like sure, I said, sure. but she, um, worked on him a little bit. And from what I can remember, she was just, you know, she, it was obvious that he had a head trauma, no matter how many times they kept bringing his heartbeat back. It kept, they kept losing him. So I think they finally just let him go. And your dad had had an injury previously from playing sports right uh, yes injury. in high school he had had a number of concussions from playing football in high school and he was told at one point by a doctor that had he, you know if he were to ever get hit there again you know it could it could kill him we're pretty sure that's what did it we're pretty sure he hit his head there in that same spot and how old were you then about 25 uh when he passed mm -hmm. Yeah, about 26, 26 when he passed, I guess, 26. Yeah, you were about 26 when he passed. You were living in his house, as we had discussed, and you were still going through school. Uh, right. Yeah. I was one semester away from finishing college. Yeah. You, okay, so you had, w you had one semester uh, before you got your bachelor's. 
Right. At, okay. At this point. So even though he had passed away and, and um, you know, your Uncle Doug had called and let you know that, you still had to go claim the body. Yes. So he had been moved, uh, or like I said before, um, he was at a different place than where we were headed. So we had to reroute because we had already mm-hmm. passed that place. Um, so my cousin Paul pulled over to the side of the road, um, and he came over to my side and... He just kind of stood there looking at me. Sorry. And he said, I don't know what to say. And I said, he's dead, isn't he? And he said, yes. So we stood there and hugged for a really long time on the side of the freeway. And then we finally had to say, well, what's next? What do we got to do now? So we turned around and we went to um, Fort Hood to claim his body. And that had to be, I mean, like, I can't imagine what, what that had to be like. Uh, I mean, that had to be tough. I mean, it was a, it was a very horrific motorcycle accident and, um, you know, you had just seen him earlier that day. And so then you went to, um, Fort Hood and they let you in and you went and talked with the doctor and, and so forth. And well, first they brought the, um, I think it's the chaplain. They brought the chaplain in to see me first, and he kind of talked to me through a few things. Um, he asked me what I wanted, and I told him that uh, I wanted to see him. You know, I wanted, I wanted to say goodbye. That I wanted to see him, and he didn't have an ID or anything on him when he had the accident, so they needed somebody, you know, to identify him anyway. But they had already taken him down to the morgue. So they had to kind of clean up before they could take me down there. So then the doctor came in to talk to me and tell me what had happened. And she basically just said that you know, he had an emergency in the air and they had to land and he, they kept losing him and they kept shocking him and bringing him back. But no matter how hard they tried, they, you know, they couldn't get him to come back and they've (sighs) decided that he had a brain injury or a, a head trauma that he was not recovering from. So they let him go. So, Then someone, I can't remember who, um, took me down to the morgue, and Paul was kind enough to come with me. Um, It's a little bit different than than you see on the movies. Uh, I don't know if this is just for this particular hospital or what, but usually in the movies, uh, the body bags and things are black. 
um, in this particular case, at least, it was not. It was a white body bag. Uh, so when they pulled him out, you could see the blood pulled in the bottom of the body bag. Um, but they opened it and identified him. And I kissed him on the forehead and told him I loved him. And then I don't remember what happened next. Uh, I think we went to the hospital in Temple to see his girlfriend at the time to see if she was okay. That had to be just, I'm not even sure how you dealt with all of that. Um, I'm not sure how you dealt with all of that. I mean, it had to be, I mean, so overwhelming. And Paul it was your co- is your cousin, uh, um, and yes. and he was really close to Thomas. And so it yes. had to be tough for him too. Yes, I'm sure it was. I couldn't really see outside of my own little bubble at the oh, moment. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> sure. What? You've told me the story before. You know, I went I went through some of these things with you because we were together at the time. And, you know, I, I've heard you talk about the chaplain and I've heard you talk about the body bag and I've heard you talk about all of those things. And, you know, it still affects me to this very day um, because there's something just so different between a lifeless body and the person that you knew. And, yes. you know, you realize that's not really them anymore it's just a shell and right and that might be one of the hardest things sure it he didn't when they opened the body bag he didn't really like I mean, he kind of had a red spot on his head, you know, like maybe where he had hit it or something. But, like, he didn't look bad, you know. He didn't look unrecognizable, but he didn't look like himself. Like, had he not been wearing his clothes and have his receding hairline, you know, and things about him that I knew were him even though he didn't look bad like he wasn't beat up or anything from the accident but he didn't like you said the lifeless body he just didn't had I not known that was him from those features I wouldn't have recognized I'm sure you had to have moments as you were going down there to identify that you were just silently hoping it was wrong yeah, all the way up until they unzipped it. I was just hoping that they were wrong, that that it wasn't him. You know, like maybe he was there, or maybe he was part of the accident, but it wasn't him since he didn't have any ID on him. I was just hoping that somebody was wrong. Um, 
But no, it was him. Yeah. I'm not even sure how you get past that, <laughs> quite honestly. Especially, I mean, this was a number of years ago. You, like we said, you're you're 26 at the time, and it. Well, there's something. Luckily, I still have my mother. Um, but there's something that happens when you lose your father. It's at least for girls or for me. I don't know if I can speak for all girls, but for me, there's something that happens when you the last male influence in your life, because I had already lost my grandfather, the ma- last male parental influence in your life is gone. You feel alone. Like you're really... the only one looking out for yourself anymore like really and truly there's no ulterior motives you know like there's something there's a transformation that happens when you lose that in your life sure it would be one of those things i always looked forward to was you know having some in-laws that i really liked and that i really wanted to hang around and do things with and i kind of felt like i had that with your dad sure um and with your mom too uh as well and uh, so it it was rough for me. So I can only imagine what it was like for you at 26. Well, when he passed, we our relationship was in the best place it had been in ever. Mm-hmm. Um, his dad was pretty rough around the edges, even rougher than my dad. And so the environment that he grew up in wasn't necessarily a nurturing or loving environment. And so it was really hard for him to tell me he loved me, you know, or anything like that. Um, and it wasn't until I was grown in 18, you know, that for the, I was like, we were, we openly expressed that we loved each other. Um, and we, even though we always knew it, you know, it was, it was just, we never really had that kind of a relationship until I was an adult. We had the best relationship we had had ever, you know, like we finally knew how to relate to each other. We were both adults and we could talk to each other. And I was able to talk to him about things that, you know, I never thought I'd be able to talk to him about. Like, I, I know we kind of didn't mention this, but, you know, I had a half sister that, he had from a previous marriage, you know, and I got to talk about when she left the family and things like that, that I never thought we'd be able to talk about ever. And we could openly discuss it, you know, before he passed away. And so I would go over there and spend, I don't know, I'd spend three or four days a week, probably over at his house, just hanging out and talking to him and helping him out with stuff around the house and stuff. Yeah. And your, your dad had uh, lots of interesting hobbies, uh, some of which he drug us into, in, in fact. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and it may be, it, they, this may be a story for another time, but I mean, there was one time where he got us into doing ceramics with him. Like he bought an entire ceramic like shop and we spent an entire week moving all of those ceramic bolts from where he bought them to his well, property. he was always looking for a good deal. So he thought, he thought he'd found a still of a deal. And so he talked us into going in halves with him you know it cost both of us less than like four hundred dollars well 
for 2,000 or more ceramic molds. And so he thought that was a heck of a deal. And by the time we got out of all of that and rid of all of it, we were pretty sure we had been taken. Oh, there was no <laughs> doubt. What happened was is that we paid somebody to move their junk from one place to another. Absolutely. But it, it was it was still a fun experience. But it was still a wonderful experience because even though he passed before we got to do that with him, uh, we got to do it with Ben before Ben passed away. And so that made that was super. You know, had he not found that deal, we'd have never had that experience. That's true. That's very true. Um, so what's uh, what's your favorite story about your dad or, or your or your fondest memory or, or my favorite story well like I said we didn't relate to each other a whole lot when I was littler it wasn't until I got older and he kind of knew how to relate to me more well one of my favorite stories uh, and this goes back to me being wild in high school is we were me and my group of friends were down, what we would call downtown in Richland, but anybody who's from a city at all knows that it's just a deserted street in the middle of a small town, but we called it downtown. Well, while, while we're talking about that, and we'll get back to the story in a second, but uh, Richland Springs uh, was uh, a thriving community at one time, right? Uh, there was um, a lot of peanut farming? Yes, um, peanut farming and... Uh, I don't remember what else. It's been so long, but there was a lot of peanut farming. Um, there were all those buildings downtown where they did all of that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then times changed, and, yeah. and the demographics changed, and and so forth. I think I think when we lived there, what the the population was what three hundred twelve people or something. Three hundred forty four. Three forty four. Right there in its city limits. Of course, there were more outside of that as well. But um, anyway, so so in this. Uh, little deserted town uh if you will that that was downtown this is the one main strip the one street that kind of went through it uh y'all would go down there and party i guess yeah we would go down there and party because there were no police officers that lived in richland the closest uh place that had police officers was san saba and that was 15 miles away so the guys, you know, because most of the guys were farmers and things, so they would have CB radios in their trucks, and so we would just have the CB radios turned on, and we would all be hanging out downtown drinking and listening to the CB radios because they would always go over the radio when they were heading to Richland to check it out, and so we would scatter. And I guess one night we didn't have our CBs on, or I don't know, maybe we had the music too loud, uh, but my dad pulled up down there in his truck, and he just said, get in. And I was like, hey, what's going on? Let's, you know, hey, why don't you get out? And he was like, no, get in the truck right now. And I was like, but what? Just get in the truck. Well, okay. And so I went and got in the truck, and he was driving off, and we went just one street over, and we were making the loop to go back to his house. And there were all of these police cars, and they were pulling up like, like you see on TV, almost like they were pulled up sideways with the doors open, and the cops were jumping out and running towards downtown where we had just come from. And I was like, hey, what is going on? You need to go, go back. I need to go warn my friends. And he was like, nope, it's too late. We're going. <laughs> and so we went back to his house, and what had happened is he had heard it over the CB radio that that the police were coming downtown Richland to bust up a party and he knew I'd be down there. So he came and got me in the truck and we went back to his house. And then all of my friends showed up 30 or 45 minutes later at his house and said, you won't believe what just happened. <laughs> <laughs> and 
you're like, I would believe it. <laughs> yeah. But, the, you know, the cops were pretty lenient back then. So they just kind of busted up the party and made them all pour out their beer and, and sent them on their way. So it wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah, it's a little bit different now than it was then. Yeah. But I'm sure that's sure. true with every generation. Okay, so um, your dad's just passed away. Mm-hmm. And you were living in, in one of his two houses. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really a challenge to deal with his death it was it was it was rough it was the hardest thing i've ever done and he had named you as the executrix of his will yes and so not only did you have to deal with the grieving process losing your father who for all intents and purposes you had just really started to grow into a full-fledged relationship with and you know, really enjoy that relationship. Not only did you have to deal with all of that, but then you also had to deal with all of the details of planning a funeral and money and how all of that plays out. You were having to deal with all of the, the funeral stuff and so forth. And, and then, then you buried your dad. We had the funeral and there was an outpouring of uh, folks supporting you and your dad and remembering him and, and that was good yes to see. the community the community in Richland Springs is unlike any place i've ever lived i agree they just they're just amazing you know anytime there's emergency of any kind um the community the entire community there comes together and they can move mountains it's it's amazing it is. I, I mean, I have to say that when I moved down there, they embraced me, and I, I, I've never really known a community like that in my entire life, even to this day. Um, it's, it's one of my favorite communities, and probably my favorite place I've ever lived in, in my life. After that was done, after dealing with all of that, then we had yet another challenge. Yes, his girlfriend at the time who had been his girlfriend on and off for the last decade probably or close to it decided that since they happened to be in a relationship together at that moment when he passed that he had no legal right to leave anything to me so she sued me yeah and so to explain that just a little bit to folks who don't know. Uh, in Texas, they have common law marriage. Right. And in Texas, there's, a, I think, a three-pronged test they, they do. You know, did you agree to be married? Did you hold out uh, to others that you were married? Which means this is my husband or this is my wife. This is how you introduced each other. Right? Sure, sure. And then I think uh, the third one was um, cohabitation. Right. And so, uh, and I'm not going to get into all the, the legal piece of that. Uh, it, it, it was an eye-opener for me, I'll be honest. Uh, there is a famous case, uh, I think it's the Dave Winfield case, uh, it, I, if I remember correctly. Uh, it was a, a case that our lawyer, or your lawyer, had um, told us about. 
uh, he and he was a he was a visiting uh, baseball player, and he had signed in to a hotel with uh, a girl that he had met while he was in town, and they signed in as Mr. and Mrs. Winfield, and she claimed common law marriage after he left for the weekend. You know, went back home, and because they had signed in as husband and wife, uh, and they had cohabitated over uh, a couple nights at the hotel, she was able to successfully. Uh, challenge uh, and, or successfully say we were married and uh, and so they ended up ruling I guess in her favor right um, and and not that this is the same thing at all it's not and I'm sure that I have no doubt in my mind that she felt that she was entitled what she was trying to get like I, f- I truly feel like she probably felt like she was entitled to that but you know, if a man works his entire life for something and then he says what he wants to do with that stuff after he dies, I think it's a travesty that somebody can come along and say, no, he can't. I, I agree. I agree. And so now after after having to bury your dad and, and so forth, now you had a court case you had to fight. That lasted two years, yes. Yeah, it was an excruciating two years, for sure. It was settled on the day that would have been his 56th birthday. It was tough and trying. It was. It took a physical and mental and emotional toll on me that I still have not recovered from. And, you know, the thing, because I was there, I mean, we we basically fought that battle together, um, you know, I, I had moved down there to support you for that. Um, we hadn't gotten married at that time. Um, we did before the court case was over, we had gotten married because I remember they served us papers on our wedding day. Yeah. I thought that was classy. The thing that, that really stuck out to me in all this is had, had the girlfriend just come and talked with us, we could have avoided all of that. Yeah. I was actually... I mean, this may sound weird, but I'm a silver lining kind of person. I've always been a glass half full kind of person. So when he passed, as devastating as that was, I was actually looking forward to going through the grieving process with her. I was, I thought it would bring us closer together. I thought it would give us a great relationship, you know, for us to go through that together. And while we were moving you to Texas from Arkansas, I believe that was when she started the process of suing me. Because by the time we got back, I was not illegally allowed to speak to her. Yeah, it, it was it was pretty challenging. We had... Uh, it, th- that was this. That was the moment in time where I realized that all politics are local. That was where I realized that the sheriff and the police officers uh, were on the side of the people that they wanted to be on, and the law be damned. And yeah, the law didn't matter. It, um, it didn't. And what he means by that is, when my dad passed away in his will. Um, he made me executrix of the estate, which meant legally I was Thomas Gibson. Until the estate was settled by all legal rights and purposes, I was Thomas Gibson. So I had, you know, I should be able to do anything with funds. I can allocate funds. I can 
have access to properties in case I needed to liquidate anything. Not that there was a big estate. I don't want people to think, oh, you know, like he he wasn't rich. He, well, you, you know, know by any the, stretch. That's really one of the funny pieces about this, or the sad pieces about this, is that there really wasn't enough to fight over. No, I, the whole thing was about a life insurance policy that my father took out. I mean, that my mother took out on my father when they were still married. And when they got divorced, he kept it um, and actually upped it some. And I, so there was not a beneficiary named on that life insurance policy. And since it was about $100,000, that's what it was all about was... That's why she wanted to be common law married to him was so that she could get the insurance money. And, you know, she was with him on the motorcycle. I don't think we mentioned this, but she was with him on the motorcycle. She was very badly injured as well. And she had lots and lots and lots of medical bills. I have no doubt. Um, She had to have lots of reconstructive surgery. And I'm sure she was just doing what she felt like she had to do to sustain herself. That's a very fair point. It's a very good point. She was on the motorcycle. Um, she almost lost a leg, if I remember correctly. Yes. I mean, she really had, um, she had challenges for sure. And I think f- from our perspective at the time, it was more, it was just more devastating to realize that we weren't going to be able to tackle all of those things together. Right. Like when we first realized that something was wrong, was, like I said, when we got back from Arkansas and we had contacted a lawyer because you had gotten the name of someone because of your contacts through the presidential campaign that you worked on. And someone said, hey, contact this lawyer. He's a personal injury lawyer out of Austin and see what he, you know, says. And so we contacted him. He started going through the normal processes of, okay, this is what the guy had for insurance, you know, that that hit them on the motorcycle. There was another driver that hit them, and that was um, something we didn't we didn't mention too, uh, is that uh, he was hit by uh, another driver that that he was going down the highway, and the driver was turning into like a hotel or something uh, opposite the highway, and he didn't see them, and he just pulled right in front of them. Right. So. Anyway, so the lawyer that we had contacted checked into the guy that hit them, checked on what kind of insurance he had, just the normal stuff that you do mm-hmm. in that sort of situation. And he said, okay, well, since she was part of the accident, uh, even though they weren't married, you know, we should probably do this with them. You know, and I said, absolutely, you know, because it was something like, I don't remember, a $100,000 policy or something, something like that and he said you know the way it works is fifty thousand dollars per person or a hundred thousand dollars per accident and so we're like okay well here's her information you know we were in Arkansas here contact her follow up with that and then we'll we'll go at this together we'll work at this together and by the time we got back which you know was not very long this was like two weeks after he died it it wasn't Mm -hmm. you know months But by the time we got back, um, he said that he called us and said he couldn't represent us. There was nothing he could do because she had already gotten a lawyer and collected everything and never even mentioned that I existed. So, 
you know, it was at that point that it was like, oh, this is not, we're not going to do this together. This is not going to be something that we're going to help each other out with. Mm -hmm. This is, we've forgotten, you know, or at least one of us had forgotten what it was that we had in common, you know, was that my dad, you know, and that he cared about both of us and, and that didn't matter anymore now that he was gone. Yeah. We went through that process. Eventually we settled out of court and, um, I don't think anybody was happy with the way it turned out, but we were able to live with it and move on. Yeah. And it took a severe toll on you. There's, it did. there's no two ways about it. By the time that we left, you had graduated from college, right? You had your bachelor's. Yeah. I took 23 hours my last semester to graduate college so that I could get my bachelor's. Yeah. I noticed that, you know, in, in, especially in little towns, like you said, word travels fast. And so what had happened after the court case was the, there people had picked sides. The that, town was divided in mm -hmm. a small town like that. that and it, something as big as that, that everyone is talking about, the town had divided and there were half of the town was on my side and half of the town was on her side and it didn't ever have to be like that. Right. So we decided to move. Yes. Uh, and uh, from my perspective at the time, it was because I had watched uh, the woman that I love uh, go through so much emotional trauma in such a short period of time. And everywhere you turned, uh, you know, there was somebody who was on the other side or there were things that were said and there was there was all that kind of stuff and the toll and this is not to say anything bad uh, about what was going on this is just kind of how it all hit us at, at well, the time yeah everybody has shit to deal with mm -hmm. uh and this just happened to be my shit i'm not saying my shit's any worse than anybody else's it was just mine to deal with and and so we had to figure out how to do that. I thought, and ultimately we thought the best thing to do would be to leave the situation altogether and let you kind of get back on your feet and, you know, emotionally. And I was pregnant with Dylan at the time. When we settled the, the court case, I was pregnant with Dylan. Between the toll that settling the court case took on me and the toll that then the pregnancy with Dylan took on me, I'm glad we left. I think I don't know what would have happened if we would have stayed, but I'm just glad we left. Me too. It, it was something that we needed to do. It, we needed to do it to move on and so forth. And it was tough because we loved that community in so many ways. Yeah, I would still friends. move back there now, now that I've got some distance from it. But, mm -hmm. but then it, I just, my entire life was about that and that court case and and I just needed it to not be about that anymore so we moved to Birmingham Alabama sight unseen sight unseen that's right I got a job here and I remember because I came in on Sunday night it was the first time I'd ever been to Birmingham I drove in because uh, I had left you in Texas with the house and and you were getting everything ready to move up here and so I came up uh, it was a Sunday night I'll never forget driving into Birmingham Alabama for the first time ever and then getting a hotel and going to work the next morning I mean, I just, I'd never been here. I mean, I had avoided Alabama like the plague for so many years. Um, 
not because Alabama's bad, but because my experience with Alabama football fans had led me to think that I didn't want to be near anyone in the state. Um, and, you know, being a Gator fan, that, you know, was pretty pervasive. But nonetheless, uh, we moved to, uh, well, just outside of Birmingham, a little place called Pelham. And uh, I started working for a different company. And we had a little boy. Yeah, we had Dylan um, on August 1st, 2011. And we named him Dylan Thomas. The Thomas was after my dad. And that was quite the experience. It was. You had gestational ju- diabetes. I had gestational diabetes, and I had developed severe preeclampsia. I can't remember the exact numbers, but my blood pressure was something like 270 over 140 when they induced me and said, all right, we've got to deliver this baby right now. Mm-hmm. I remember, because... I'm going to mention this again. I was on call at the time, <laughs> and uh, and so uh, we had planned uh, to induce, I think, on that Monday, and I, I'd been on call. I just finished like a, a you know, a 24-hour shift, and I was going to go check you into the hospital, and I was going to come home and sleep, and then in the morning meet you back there for the induction, and then when you got there- When they checked us in, they were like, nope, we've got to right do this now. right now. Yeah. Um, something I would like to mention that we skipped a little bit mm-hmm. uh, was uh, you moved here February 11th, mm-hmm. uh, 2011. Myself and the three dogs and the two cats did not join you until April 1st of that year. So I was by myself for eight weeks in Texas while I was pregnant. I only mention that because... Then on April 27th of that year was when the worst tornado ever to hit the state, I believe, you may have to fact check me on that, uh, hit Alabama. And you were in Boston. Yeah, that was a challenging <laughs> year. I don't know I don't know that it was the worst tornado in Alabama history. It, it was certainly a year where we had a lot of tornadoes. Uh, Tuscaloosa, uh, parts of it were leveled. There were a n- number of people who died, uh, and there were tornadoes that dropped everywhere. It was a big enough deal that now, even, what, eight years later, they still refer to it as the April 27th tornado. Yeah, it was, it was something else. And we had, that wasn't the only time. I mean, there were tornadoes that season were, were terrible. Like, I think it was like 200 and something tornadoes hit Alabama in that few months span. Right. Yeah. And so we had just moved here and then you were in Boston that when that big one hit, I was just thinking, what have we done? <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, and I was in Boston for training. Uh, the company I was working with at the time would send us up to, to Boston to do training. And so I would be gone a week at a time for different, you know, continuing education stuff and, and so forth. And it was always painful for me because, you know, you got tornadoes going on. Your wife and child, newborn, is down in, in Alabama. The joke is, what do a redhead from Alabama and a tornado have in common? Sooner or later, They're one of them gets your trailer. trailer. Yeah. So there, there's, there is some historical significance to tornadoes in Alabama as well. Uh, Anyways, I just, I don't know. I felt like that was worth mentioning. Um, yeah, so we had Dylan after mm-hmm. a very complicated pregnancy and a very complicated labor. But we, we avoided C-sections, and, and that was all good. And so we had Dylan, and 
He was perfect. It was um, it was a great facility that mm-hmm. that you know, um, I believe it was UAB uh, mm-hmm. Women's uh, Women's Center, yeah. Women's Center, Women and uh, Infant Center. Yeah, and it, it uh, top notch. There, I mean, I mean, I think if you've got an emergency delivery that you have to do, I think that's the place to be. Mm-hmm. It's one of the top four neonatal hospitals in the United States, which was one of the things that you know. Um, that I looked at when <laughs> when we decided to move here because I knew we had one coming. But for those of you who don't know, um, I'm kind of a crazy vegetarian hippie, so so a hospital birth is is uh, a little difficult for me to swallow, even under the best of circumstances. But it 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 was everybody everything turned out okay. <laughs> well, and at the time, to be f- to be fair, to be fair, for all you Letterkenny fans out there, to be fair. We weren't uh, really vegetarian at the time, and right, so we, that's true. We, that didn't come till a little bit later. The next year is when we went plant based. Yeah, I think that's right. And so, uh, and there were some challenges in the pregnancy and the delivery and so forth. Uh, and and because we moved in the middle of the pregnancy, you know, we didn't really have a doctor that we were super comfortable with. We just had the one that we knew was the best in emergency situations, but. He didn't really have the best bedside manner um, and that sort of thing. So it, it was just difficult. It was a difficult situation. It, it really situation. was. It was. To this day, we're still in Alabama. Then we had another child a little while later. Yeah, about three and a half years ago, almost four, I guess four in December, we had Raylan Sundance and... Uh, He's the exact opposite of Dylan, but he's still perfect. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I might be biased. Uh, um, as well, you should be. But Dylan has my dad's name, but Raylan has my dad's personality. He's just a whirlwind, just a little Tasmanian devil. He just He's just full of it, and he's so exciting, and he's so much fun. And Dylan is so exciting and so much fun. But Dylan is sweet and kind-hearted, and he's just the most loving, precious little thing. Uh, he always wants to help, and, you know, Raylan's kind of the, on the wild side. He's like, let's make it dirtier first, you know. <laughs> Now, you had challenges and complications with his pregnancy, too, right? You had gestational diabetes with both of them. I did. I had gestational diabetes with Raylan as well, but because I had been plant-based for three years, I think, at that point, it was easy to monitor. It was easy to control with diet. I didn't have to have insulin or anything. Um, I was able to control my blood sugar just through eating plant-based things that I knew wouldn't mess with my blood sugar, basically. Sure. And we also saw a doctor here. We saw a doctor here just to make sure that everything was good. There was there was no issues. Uh, when I was pregnant with Dylan, one of the doctors that we had said something to the effect of, one in every 27 of your children could have Down syndrome, you know. And so even though one, I'm never going to have 27 children, you know, that's still a scary statistic, mm-hmm. you know. So when we got pregnant with Raylan, we made sure, you know, to, that everything was okay. And not that it would matter, but it was just something you needed to be prepared for if it happened. And we also, or, or you had decided that you didn't want to have a 
birth in a hospital again if you didn't have to. Yeah, I had been doing quite a bit of research um, on home births, which um, at the time was illegal in Alabama. You, you could have your baby at home, but you couldn't have a trained medical professional there to help you. Um, they would lose their license or face jail time. So, you know, it was something we had to seriously think about because we knew we had to drive two and a half or three hours to get to a midwife to deliver our baby if we wanted to have our baby outside of a hospital setting. But I was, I guess I was found and determined. And so as long as there was no medical reason to have my baby in a hospital, I wasn't interested. Uh, so I found, I had watched The Business of Being Born, both of them, and I contacted the farm in Summertown, in Summertown, Tennessee. A wonderful and amazing midwife who I think you will hopefully interview for your podcast one day. I um, certainly hope so. Named Stacy uh, Hunt. She contacted me and said, yeah, I'd love to be your midwife. Come up and meet me. And so... We went up and we met her. Uh, we went to the farm. I'll let you tell a little bit about your first impressions of, you know, the first time we went to the farm and that sort of stuff. What do you think hi. we're doing? Speaking of Raylan, hi, buddy. Hey, you want to say hi? Hi. There you go. So the interesting thing about the farm is that my mother who had all of her children at home, and my father, who delivered them all at home, had considered, uh, back in the 70s when I was born, they had considered going to Summertown to have me because it's world-renowned as the place to go to train midwives. Uh, and I, we're not going to tell the whole story for due to time constraints here, but uh, it, is, uh, it, is, it was a hippie commune. It was one of the biggest communes in America. Uh, and that eventually changed to just being more of an intentional community uh, by the time we got there. Uh, but it has a very, very um, amazing history of babies being born, you know, because when they moved there, the commune didn't really go outside of their borders for things like medical care unless they absolutely had to. So they kind of taught each other how to have babies. And, and the interesting thing is, is, uh, or at least, well, there's so many interesting things about it, but one of the things that always stood out to me was in all the, the kids that had been had on the farm, uh, and it was thousands of them, yeah. uh, none of them developed autism. Yeah, none of them developed autism, um, and the C-section rate was something like 1% or 2%. Yeah, it was really, really low. And they had, and the thing was, is for anyone that's listening, they, they had great relationships with the hospitals, and they knew if there was something wrong, and you could just... Right, the midwives have these box, ticker boxes, basically, and so if you 
are in labor and you meet however many, I don't know what the exact number is, of these criteria in this ticker box for the midwives, they're like, okay, it's time to go to the hospital. And they have such a close relationship with the hospitals there that the hospitals know that you don't want really any medical in- intervention unless absolutely necessary. You know, they don't try to push any of their stuff on you. It's kind of whatever you want. It's it's a very trusting and close relationship that they have with the mothers there instead of just kind of herding them in like cattle. Mm-hmm. You had chosen to to go down that route. Right. Stacy said, sure, come on and and I'll meet you. And so we went and we met her. And And like he said, we won't go into the whole thing, but just to give you an example of the kind of help we're talking about uh the first time we met her it was her and two of her assistants we were at the farm in the examination room and the examination room is basically like a room inside of a house and there's pretty much no medical equipment there whatsoever you lay down on this table and they feel of your stomach and they can feel where the baby's bottom is and they can feel where the head is and they can feel how you're presenting and all of that just by feeling of your stomach and be knowing, you know, they don't need ultrasounds and all of that. Um, they have the sonar heartbeat thing, you know, so they could listen to the heartbeat and all of that. But, you know, it was just, it lasted probably two and a half hours or so. And they just sat down and interviewed us and talked to us about what we wanted, about our history, all of that, instead of just hurting us through there in 20 minutes and getting us out the door. Right, right. There there was a, a big difference. And, and there's nothing, uh, we don't really have anything against whatever right, choice no, somebody I think, makes. I think every woman should be able to give birth to their baby in whatever way they see fit. And if that's in a hospital, that's great. If that's in a birthing tub in the middle of the woods, that's fine too. There's nothing against somebody who chooses to have their baby in a hospital. That's just not what's right for us. I want to skip forward kind of to the birth. Uh, we had had a... Um, a bit of a challenging pregnancy, but it wasn't as challenging as Dylan's. It was uh, so much better than Dylan's. Um, as far as the pregnancy piece of it goes, uh, we had discovered that your thyroid went out after Dylan's, uh, you know, so mm-hmm. there, there were other things that we had to deal with too. And uh, so I'm going to tell you just a little bit about how we got there in, in this birth because it's a really amazing story. I was on call. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yet again, and I, I remember it pretty vividly because of the new Star Wars movie, the first new one, you know, after Disney bought everything, it was the, the first new one that came out, and I went uh, to see the opening show the Thursday, you know, before the official opening on Friday or whatever, I got back home from that around 11.30 or so, or midnight, something like that, I don't remember, and went to sleep, then around 3 in the morning, I think it was. Yeah, so you woke me up and said... Hey, honey, I think I'm in labor. Right. Um, and that's from your perspective. Uh, that's quite a bit more simple than my perspective. But mm-hmm. uh, what had happened is I had gone to the doctor that day for a checkup. You know, like I said, we were doing. And my blood pressure was a little high. And since I didn't have preeclampsia for Raylan's pregnancy, that was kind of unusual. My, my blood pressure hadn't been high the whole pregnancy. So... They sent me off and actually checked me into the hospital and monitored, hooked me up to one of the blood pressure machines and monitored me there for several hours before they basically said, okay, you can go home, everything's fine. And so I came home and went to bed. 
and I knew you were out, so I wasn't worried about it. When I came home from the movie uh, and I walked into the bedroom, you had uh, this this affirmation CD going on. Right. I was doing the Hypno Baby stuff, and so they have these different affirmations that you do all throughout the pregnancy, basically. You know, my... Mm, my body is strong. It knows exactly what to do when it's time to have this baby. And it's just, you know, basically stuff to just make you feel better, mm -hmm. you know. Sure. Um, and you just, so you're supposed to go to sleep listening to this every night. So I can maybe <laughs> penetrate your psyche or something. I don't know. Um, so I had gone to sleep listening to it. And the next track started automatically playing after that one was over. And the next track was the birthday affirmation. So it's the affirmations you say to yourself and you play the day you're giving birth to the baby. Yeah. And so I walked into the bedroom and you were out cold and all I heard was this woman's, you know, fairly soothing voice saying, your uterus is like a golden halo. <laughs> it's expanding, expanding. And I just thought to myself, she was irritated that I went to the movie without her and she put this on so I would have to hear it when I got back to the house um but i think that's kind of funny considering <laughs> that you know the next thing that happened was we're in labor so then i woke up uh about 1 30 i think with a stomach ache and so i you know went to the bathroom as you do a million times when you're pregnant and i came back and laid back down and i woke up again about 30 minutes or an hour later and my stomach was still hurting pretty bad and and so I went back to the restroom and I came back out and and it still wasn't going away. And so that's when I woke you up and I said, I think maybe I'm in labor. And you were like, seriously? Because <laughs> you had just fallen asleep, you know, not not long before that. Yeah, I only had uh, maybe a couple hours of sleep before you woke me up. And, and I remember I was like, it's probably just Braxton Hicks, baby. I, I, I think you're, you're probably fine. Yeah, because with Dylan, we didn't, you know, I especially didn't get to experience natural labor because they induced me. So I wasn't sure what it felt like. You know, I wasn't sure if I was just having stomach cramps and this was just something normal or if it was actually labor. I just wasn't sure. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to call the midwife and... And she said, well, you, you better come on. Yeah, well, she said, because I called her, and she said, well, it's probably just Braxton Hicks. Because <laughs> it was two weeks before what we thought was my due day. Well, it was two weeks before what the doctors right. at the hospital thought it was. Mm -hmm. um, based on our conception piece, we were pretty sure that it was spot on, mm -hmm. but everybody had convinced us that wasn't the Yeah, they the kept case. saying, well, all babies measure the same at the very beginning of your pregnancy, and it shows that you're at this, and of course, we were like, yeah, but you know, we took an ovulation test. We knew exactly when I was ovulating. But anyways, w we let them talk us out of it. And then it turns out, oh, there he is, you know, so. Well, and midwives had come on and we were completely unprepared. I was on call and we hadn't packed anything because we were still two weeks out from, from the whole thing. And so we pretty much threw everything in the kitchen sink in the minivan and loaded up Dylan and, and headed. Your mom, uh, mom. And your mom. Yeah. And. and headed to Summertown. That's right. It took about three, three and a half hours to get there. We got to the midwife's office. Uh, she checked you out and said, you're in labor. <laughs> well, she checked us out and she said, well, you're dilated, but you know, you're only like at a 
three or a four, it, but it was more than the day before because when I'd been at the hospital the day before, I was at a one, you know, so they were like, ah, you probably got another week or so. But then when the midwife checked us out, she said, well, it could still not be labor, you know, so what we're going to do is we're going to put you up in this house because that's how it works there. You give, you get your own house, your, your own cabin um, when you give birth. And so she was like, we don't have a cabin prepared for you because you're, we thought you were two weeks out. So what we're going to do is we'll put you up in this house, you know, that's kind of our backup house. And, and I'll come by and check on you a little bit later. You know, it might not be labor. It might all go away and it might still be a few days. You just don't know. And so we're like, okay. And so we went to the house. I think we went and had lunch. You know, we went and yeah, had some it, Mexican food. I mean, we made some bad decisions there. <laughs> There's no doubt because... Well, because I thought with Dylan, it was 20 hours, even though they induced me. It was still like it took 20 hours to have Dylan. And so naively, I thought, oh, at worst, this is going to take 20 hours. But since this is my second baby it's only going to take 10, you know, like, but I'm hoping for eight, like I'm hoping eight is going to be the, the sweet spot. So we thought, Oh, well, we'll go have lunch. And then, you know, I'll have my strength for pushing and all of that and everything will be fine. Um, when in retrospect, what we should have done is slept. Yeah. Because neither one of us had had much sleep at all. And if, if we had to do over again, that is the one difference I, I would, there are two things I would do differently. One is I would hire a doula. Yep. I, w I, I wouldn't even think twice. I might even hire two. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would definitely make sure that we slept as soon as we could, that we wouldn't be tired in that process. That because was the biggest what, challenge. Yeah. What ended up happening is we went and had lunch. We went back to the cabin. Stacy, the midwife, came a few hours later and to check on us, and I had dilated a little bit more, uh, but not a whole lot, but things were getting more intense. You know, when it first started, I could walk around, I could joke, it wasn't really that big of a deal. You know, it kind of hurt when I was having the contraction, but it wasn't that bad. And things started getting, like the closer we got to sundown, the worse it got. It started getting pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah, spicy Mexican food was maybe not the best idea to speed that up. Uh, and she and she was like, "Yeah, yeah, you're in labor. We're gonna ha we're gonna have this baby. So you're not going back home. You're gonna stay right here." And so that's what we did. Little did we know that m midwives, we kind of just thought, "Oh, well, she's our midwife, and once we go into labor, she's gonna be there with us." Uh, nothing against her. We just didn't know that. That's not how it works. So she came by every few hours to check on progress and see how things were going. But really, it was just us. You yeah, know. It was. A short 40 hours later. Yeah, we have a YouTube video on it if anybody wants to see it. But uh, yeah, it took 40 hours for Raylan to make his big debut. Uh, and by the time he got there, I was so exhausted. I just thought, if I can do this, I can do anything. Because it was so hard you know it wasn't emotionally hard like say my father's death or divorce it was the hardest thing I've done physically ever and probably will ever do and I had been around a lot of home births in my time my sister had all three of her children at home with a midwife my mother had all five of hers I was there for every birth I really had an understanding of how this all kind of would usually come together, uh, but I, I was not a, aware of some of the, the intricacies of birthing there. Right. Don't get me wrong. I, um, 
I knew it was going to be hard and I knew it was going to hurt, but I just had no idea how much, you know, um, there was one point I remember uh, at the end when we're, we were in the throes and she was telling me to push and I was sitting on this birthing stool and I, there was sweat dripping off of the end of my nose and I was completely naked and, it, you know, it was a very primal experience, the most primal thing I've ever done. And you were so hot, too. Man, you were hot <laughs> as could be doing that. But uh, I remember she was down there and I was on this birthing stool and I was pushing and she she was doing something and, and it was hurting. Like every time she would say push, it was hurting. But it wasn't hurting in the way it had been hurting. It was hurting different. And I couldn't figure out what was wrong. So she was down there and something was feeling different. She said something to the effect, you heard it more than I did, but it was something to the effect of I had very narrow pelvic bones. So what she was, what she was doing was she was sticking her hands in around the baby's head or Raylan's head where he was crowning and she was basically prying them open for lack of a better word. She was moving the bones so so that Raylan's head could fit Mm -hmm. through the birth canal and that was so much more painful than any of the rest of it had been and even though I love my midwife dearly I wanted to punch her in the face oh I'm sure you did (laughs) I've never I've never quite watched I've never seen an experience quite like what you went through it was 40 hours uh, Raylan was born. He was a healthy little baby, and we spent the next I don't know three or four days here. Was it maybe a week? It, it was, it was three or four days, I think. It was um, you know we had the the postnatal care that needed to be done, and and you know he uh, he did develop jaundice, and we had to go to a doctor and have some blood drawn and things like that. And um, we learned a lot of things in the process, but he turned out to be just fine. And uh, it's kind of funny because when you and I first got together, I told you that mom and dad had all their kids at home. And when we started getting serious. uh, And he he also told me that he wanted to have 12 children. So me being the smart aleck that I am, I said something to the effect of, well, I'm not having my babies in a box under the stairs. (laughs) And, of course, I supported you all the way with, with that particular thing, like whether you wanted to do it natural or whether you wanted to go to a hospital or whatever. I, right. You know, I just wanted you to be happy with your choices. But the funny thing was is that I remember when you were l- laying on the futon bed there, which was super comfortable, by the way. Uh, when you were laying on the, on the futon bed uh, with Raylan in your arms, I looked up above you and I realized that you had given birth under a set of stairs. Yeah, as we were leaving, like I said, we have a YouTube video on it. So if you guys want to see all of this stuff, go to the Electronic Cliftons and just look at the YouTube video. I haven't posted one in years, but that one is on there. Um, Anyways, as we were leaving and taking our video, as we were leaving that day, well, not that day, but the day we left to come back home, um we were panning around and kind of showing the cabin and sure enough I had 
had my baby on a futon <laughs> under the stairs or on a not a futon but on a birthing stool under the stairs so it was quite a fitting story for it, sure. it was it was kind of fun so you came through that and um now you're now i am a stay-at-home mom uh and i homeschool both of the boys raylan's still three so it's pretty easy to homeschool him at this point you know give him some colors and do some flashcards and he's good to go read him some books um dylan uh he's doing really well you know mm. we've definitely had our challenges you know it's not easy to homeschool your children by any stretch of the imagination um so i think teachers should be paid more because it's just not easy Absolutely to teach should. children so um so that's going pretty well. I think we're finally kind of getting into a groove there where everybody's kind of getting used to it. Um, and I also run a very part-time eBay business on the side. Um, I, we, we find other people's trash and sell them to those that think that it's treasure. Mm -hmm. So my hope with that is to replace your income so that you can pursue other things you want to do and we can live in Richland if we want or in Colorado if we want or in Florida if we want or all of the above. But it's still very part-time at this point. But, sure. but that is the goal is to build it up to where it can replace your income. And then when I'm able to do that, uh, I would like to be able to teach others how to do it. It has been very part-time, but it's been very successful in a part-time way. Um, sure, yeah. If I was working on it 40 hours a week, uh, like you would a full-time job, you know, I, I, think it, I think it could do that. Sure. Absolutely. I think it could replace your income. But like I said, with me homeschooling the boys and, and all of the other things that come with being a full-time homemaker, it's on the back burner. It doesn't take priority over the other things. It's something I work on if I have time. So I, I, I want to ask you just uh, a couple more things, and, and uh, one of which is, what, what do you feel like you learned from the pregnancy with Raylan and going through that? Now, you had said earlier that you felt like it empowered you to realize that you could do pretty much anything because it was so intense and so forth. Well, you know when we're children... And you're told you can be anything you want to be or you can do anything you want to do. And you believe it like you wholeheartedly believe it. And because you wholeheartedly believe it, it's true. You know, there's a saying. Um, she believed she could whether she whether he believed he could or whether he believed he couldn't. That was the truth. You know, whatever that saying is. I found that to be very true in my life. With Raylan's birth, you know, I had always pictured it as, you know, I'm going to be this strong, powerful mother that can give birth to her child in a cabin in the middle of the woods in the dead of winter, and it's all going to be fine. You know, I've, I've got it in me. That's what I'm made to do. It's what my body's made to do. I can do it. Once I had gone into labor and we were there and we were in the middle of that experience, I wholeheartedly believed it. There was no, may, maybe I should be at the hospital or maybe I can't do this. It was, yeah, I'm here and I'm doing this. And even though it was hard and I was so tired and I was so ready to be done, once I had gotten through it, almost like when you're running a marathon or a 5K, 
I was like, wow, I did it. Like, I really, really did it. Like, I set my goals on this thing. And even though it took nine months and it was really hard, plus another 40 hours of labor, like, I did it. I did it and I'm here. And if I can do this, I can do anything. Very empowering. Yes. It, it, uh, and, and, and I've been able to see that change too. And the key to part of that is having a good midwife. There was points during the labor, sure, that I was like, I'm so tired. And, you know, we had been at it for 36 hours and it was so painful. And I was so sure that I, you know, she was going to say push, you know, because with Dylan after my water broke, it was, you know, like after my water broke, we had Dylan with in hours, you know, he was in our arms very quickly with Raylan. That just wasn't the case. And I just kept being sure that that she was going to say, okay, it's time to push. And she would say, oh, you're only seven centimeters. And it was so defeating. And at one point she looked at me and she said, I know you can do this. If at any point during this process, had I thought you can't handle this, I would have never agreed to let you be my client. So when she said that to me, I was like, hell yeah, I can do this. And you did? I did. I want to thank you for being on the podcast with us today. And um, I'm sure we will have you back. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, the idea behind Plain Ordinary Dragon was to talk with people just like you who have gone through these amazing things and have this amazing story, which of course we've only scratched. You can't, you can only tell so much of that story in, in, you know, a few episodes or an hour or whatever. And you've been able to really do so many amazing things. Like, you know, we go back to from the beginning of, of where we started talking today and look at how much you have accomplished and all the challenges you've had to overcome and so forth to get to where you are today. Do you ever look back and realize, wow, I've been through so much based on that alone, how bright the future can be? Sure. Yeah. I look, I look back on things and, and, and think, wow. Hmm, yeah, I guess, I guess a lot has happened. You know, um, you don't really realize it. Like when the bad things happen, it, it's terrible and it's a bad thing and you know it's a bad thing, but you don't realize <clears throat> how much of it you've been through until you start, I guess, tallying it, for lack of a better word. Um, so, yeah, there have been a lot of things happen. Gosh, it's made me so strong and it's made me so resilient. Um, I wouldn't be half of what I am today if I hadn't had to face those things. Let me ask you this. What would you tell anybody else out there about going through challenging experiences and challenging situations? With the world of Facebook that we have now, there are a lot of memes all over. And so you know, I'm sure everyone has seen this, uh, but there's a saying that you, you have no idea how strong you are until you have no other choice. And that's true. Even when you are looking at things that seem like they are insurmountable, that this is something I can't do. This is something I'm not made for, I'm not qualified for, or I can't do it. I just don't have, I can't. But then when you have to, you can. You, 
you have no other choice. And when you come out the other side of it, you're amazed by just how resilient you actually are. I think that's that's a good place to leave it. So thank you for being on the podcast and spending time with us here today. And uh, we'll I'll go ahead and put some I'll put some links in the show notes uh, in regards to uh, the electronic Clifton. So anybody that wants to check out um, the videos <laughs> on the 40 hour birth uh, or delivery and um, which is is all. I don't know if it's safe for work, but it's definitely uh, safe for viewing. It's, there's well, there's there's no money shots or anything, yeah, so so it's it's all good. It's it should be fine. There may not even be any cuss words. I don't think so. You never know. Uh, but it was so long; it had to be split up into two videos. Well, we'll put those links in the show notes. Go from there. We'll have you back. So I know a lot of the things that I've talked about today, a lot of people wouldn't talk about, or they might consider it too much information or I don't know. Um, I just, a lot of the people I grew up with and that I know wouldn't talk about these kinds of things. Um, it's just not done where I'm from, but I feel like it's important because if what I have gone through can help someone else, you know, can be the roadmap or the beacon of light for someone else who goes through something similar. I think that's important to share. I think it's important for people to know that they can come out the other side of something that they think they might not ever make it through. Thank you so much for spending some time with us here at Plain Ordinary Dragon. Well, thanks for having me. Was that an amazing episode or what? I mean, wow, I'm lucky because I get to spend every day with her and I'm able to learn from her. And in many, many ways, she is the thing that centers me in life. Just want to go through a few takeaways here real quick. No matter what life throws at you, when you come out the other side, you're stronger for it. You're able to learn from those situations. Like Jana said, you may not think you can do this, but when you're forced to do something, you're able to really see what you're able to do. You know, a lot of times, and this is something that, that we talk about frequently, it's mindset, right? And we, we think about what we can do and what we can't do, and that limits us. That's, that's where limiting beliefs come in. You know, do, can I, I, you know, even sometimes you don't verbalize it. That's been something in my life, especially is, is I have a, a number of limiting beliefs that are so ingrained that I don't even realize that they're limiting beliefs. And when you're forced, when your beliefs are forced up against a wall where they have nowhere to run and hide, when you get to the other side, you realize who you are and you realize what you can do and you realize how amazing and how powerful you really are. And that's part of the whole reason why Plain Ordinary Dragon exists today. It's because that is who we are and who we can be. And it, it, I, we're here to challenge you to do what you want to do, to climb the mountains you want to climb, to run the races you want to run, to go and do the things you want to do, experience the things you want to experience. And it doesn't matter what those challenges are. Everybody's got them. They're all many times unique to the individual, but you can do it because you may be plain and you may be ordinary, but you're a dragon. And how amazing is that? 
I just want to touch on giveaways real quick. It, it uh, We haven't really had, uh, we've had some reviews, and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for the reviews. Um, and thank you so much for spending your time with us, too. Um, I forgot this in the intro, but it is true that time is the most valuable resource we have, and the fact that you choose to spend a few moments of yours with us is very humbling, and I really, really appreciate it. Uh, in regards to the giveaways, uh, I've had a few challenges with the website. I've had some folks say they couldn't sign up for the for the newsletter uh, and so forth. So um, we're going to just go ahead and keep rolling with the, the giveaways that we have. We're not going to do any new ones right now because it doesn't seem like folks are really interested in, in the giveaways. And that's, that's fine. That's great. Um, I appreciate the feedback and uh, maybe we'll just do something different. We'll just continue to find people that can inspire you and, and we'll have the plain ordinary conversations with them and we won't worry so much about swag and giveaways and so forth. If you'd like that to change, then you can let me know. Drop me a line at plainodragon at gmail.com and we can talk through any of that stuff. So what we're going to do is the giveaways, uh, we're going to we're going to keep them running for some you know reviews out there and, and so forth. And then in in two weeks, not next week's episode, but the episode after that one, uh, we're going to go ahead and do the giveaways. And so I'm going to just try to make it really simple. Uh, if you go to iTunes and write a review, you're going to be entered. That's all there is to it. If you uh, shoot me an email and tell me what your favorite episode is and why, then uh, we're going to go ahead and put you in. And if you sign up for the newsletter, um, and if you have a problem signing up with the newsletter at plainordinarydragon.com, then just shoot me an email at plainodragon at gmail.com and let me know that you want to be on the newsletter list and I'll sign you up for that as well as uh, we'll go ahead and enter you into the drawings. Uh, don't forget, we do have some cool stuff. We've got some really great books. You know, uh, we're, we're giving away Marie Forleo's brand new book, uh, Everything is Figureoutable. We're giving away several copies of Kathy Heller's new book that's going to be out in just a few weeks. Um, uh, don't keep your day job. Uh, we still have the guitar strap from Firebird Guitar Straps, uh, and we're going to give that stuff away. So not next week's episode, but the episode after that is going to be the giveaways. So make sure you contact us, and, um, and we answer our, our DMs over uh, on uh, Instagram. Yeah, so if you head over to Instagram, you can DM me there, and we always answer those. That's Plain Ordinary Dragon. Until next week, remember, you may be plain, you may be ordinary. But you're a dragon. Oh, I had one friend by my side.